Hey, good morning, Rogers Park. How are you guys doing this morning? I want to say a happy, happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers in the room. Um, you know, one of, the th- we, one of the things we see in the, throughout the Gospels is multiple times Jesus refers to himself as, as, a, as a mother hen who cares for and gathers um, his children. And just one of the things we, we see in that is that the, the, the heart of the mother is something that we can all um, learn from. And the heart of the mother um, exists even beyond those that are biologically mothers. Um, so just want to say a big thank you to the heart of motherhood um, in this church for all of those that exude that, that demonstrate that um, to all of the children in our church and all the families in our church. We, we appreciate you and we, we see you. Um, one other thing I want to point out, a picture might come up on the screen, hopefully it will. Um, look at this incredible gathering that happened on Friday night. Um, there you go. Uh, big shout out to Lynn, Marshall, Sam Yeager, and the rest of the team that just worked on this and got our women together on Friday night and Saturday morning just to come together around God's Word, God's Word and come together around one another. Um, so just want to give a shout out to them and I'm excited just to see how that continues to grow and serve the women um, in our church. Um, also this week, just want to share, some of you um, know that I managed to do some traveling this week between Sundays, managed to get back. Um, uh, last Sunday after our members meeting, I was able to get in a plane and flew um, to Qatar, to Doha um, in the Middle East, and just was able to be part of an incredible um, gathering. It was a gathering of uh, pastors, evangelical pastors, imams, Muslim leaders, rabbis, Jewish leaders, diplomats, um, ambassadors um, from multiple countries all coming together to have a conversation around religious freedom um, and what it looks like, particularly in countries where there is a majority um, religion. How does that majority religion care for and understand and create space for um, a minority religion or minority faith in that context? So what does it look like for us here in the West to see and care for maybe our Muslim um, friends and brothers and sisters? And then also, what does it mean in Muslim-majority countries? Um, for them to give space and care and love um, towards Christians and, and space for them to live out their faith. Um, so just a beautiful, beautiful time. Um, this picture I just wanted to share. A lot of what, one of the things that we did, we were able to... Um, a lot of it was just at the grassroots level of how do we build relationships. So I got to spend a, a morning with these two imams. They're both Qatari imams. Um, and the exercise that we did together was I just got to sit and share my story, um, why I'm a follower of Jesus, why I've chosen to, to teach God's word, why, how I felt a sense of calling in my life to do that, and then also got to hear from them about why they chose to be imams and why they share, or chose to, to, to follow the religion of Islam. And then we had to get up. Um, in front of all the other Christians and all of the other um, Muslims and, and share um, one another's story. So just a great chance to, to, to know one another and kind of know each other on our own terms. So all that to say, um, I'm just excited to continue this conversation here in Rogers Park. You guys know that we're in a neighborhood that's got many, many faiths. We've got a large Jewish Orthodox community. Um, to the west, and we've got a large Muslim community in the neighborhood, and we're already kind of starting conversations with our global team, and what is it, what is it going to look like for us to build further genuine relationships and friendships um, with our neighbors here that we can truly um, know one another, that we can truly love one another once we know one another. So um, be on the lookout for that, and thank you guys for, for your prayers um, this week. 
We are in a series in 1 Corinthians, so if you've got a Bible, please open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read um, from that in a moment. Um, for the past couple of weeks, it's been really good. Loved working through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been looking at um, what Paul writes and how Paul gives us clarity as to what it means that Jesus rose, to the dead, rose from the dead. Not only that it happened, but, but, but what it means. And one of the things you'll, you'll have noticed throughout this series in 1 Corinthians is that much of Paul's writings have been kind of corrective in nature. He, he's been trying to get his readers to understand where they've gone wrong, and he's, he's been seeking to realign them and realign, realign us with what is true. And when you and I, when we stray off course in belief of what is true, we do it for, for, for many reasons. It's often because we have misunderstood something or because we've forgotten something or because we've begun to overemphasize one thing, or because we've begun to underemphasize another thing, or another reason that we stray off course in believing what is true is because for some of us even here today, you, you, you did not know or have not been to a church before or even heard God's Word preached before, and therefore you do not know what God's Word says to be true. And this, this brings us to church with the level of, of excitement and intrigue as to what God can do in this space that we gather here, not only to, to, to hear God's word, but also we gather here to hear his immediate word for us today, right now. We don't just, just gather to be taught about the concept that God speaks to us, but rather we come here and we gather to experience the reality that God speaks to us. And it's my heart that that is why you would come to church, not just to learn about concepts, but to experience the reality of what God is doing in the world. God speaks actively, intentionally, currently, specifically. God's word is alive whether we teach it or we preach it or we sing it or we pray it. God's word meets us. When you, when you pick up your Bible, it's not, in, not only you that's moving towards God's word, but God's word more, moves towards you, towards you into your circumstances, towards you into your situation. God speaks. And when our, where our passage meets us today or, or moves towards us is into that place that we maybe find ourselves when our imaginations have not fully comprehended all that God is capable of doing. This is a common place, the place where our imaginations have not fully comprehended all that God is capable of doing. To be looking at our lives, to be looking at our circumstances and saying, God, I don't see what you could possibly do with this. I'm looking at the, at the, at the raw materials, the mistakes, the mess, the miscommunication, the misunderstandings, the impossibilities of my life, and maybe... For you today, the impossibilities of your life are particularly poignant given that it's Mother's Day. God, I know you say you can do anything, but this has been looked at from every angle and every perspective, and I don't see a single redeemable possibility. Every door is closed and every end is a dead end. Church, our imaginations do not fully comprehend all that God is capable of doing. Today's verses are yes about what it means for followers of Jesus to one day be given resurrected, glorified, physical bodies, but this passage is also about God speaking life 
and hope and expectancy and faith into our lives when our imaginations are failing us. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 35 right down to verses 49. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 reads like this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and there is another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown to dishonor, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual, it is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As a man, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the, of the dust. And as, as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray before we jump into God's word. God, we come before you this morning, God, and we just um, recognize, God, our desire and our need for you to speak into our lives. God, so we come um, with surrendered hearts this morning. We come with humble hearts, God, recognizing, God, that your your word speaks with power and with clarity, God. So would you do that in our lives today? I pray, God, that we would be a church and a community that grows in Christ-likeness. God, I pray that we'd be a community that pushes out from the boundaries that we are in, God, to see others that are maybe not like us, to see others that are different than us, and we would move out, God, with love, to love our neighbors and to love them well. God, may you do that amongst us, I pray in your name. Amen. Like I said, we've been looking at the the resurrection of Jesus for the last number of weeks. Two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians as as a letter to a particular church in a particular city in Corinth, his initial emphasis at the beginning of this chapter, if you remember, was that it happened. But it wasn't only that it happened, that Jesus rose from the dead, but also in our passage two weeks ago, Paul was making the point, if his readers aren't to choose not to believe in the resurrection that they were going to be going alone. I don't know if you remember that, that there was, that there is no other Christian faith. Christianity with a living, resurrected, reigning Christ is the only Christianity that there is. There is no other Christian faith, which bled well into last week, into Jimmy's message, where the emphasis was consequently then, if there is no resurrection, then all that we're doing as a church is is, is futile, is, is pointless, then our lives and our faith and our circumstances are, in fact, a dead end. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is saying, no. He's saying, no, this, 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 this isn't futile. Your faith is not meaningless, even if sometimes you feel like it 
is, it matters. Your faith matters. It's going somewhere, leading somewhere, because the resurrection is true. To flesh this out a little bit, what Christians believe is that although death is a very real part of our lives, we believe the resurrection means that death has been struck already with a fatal blow. We believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he overcame death and a new possibility entered into the created order. Jesus became the first fruits. He became the early bloom of a new, transformed, resurrected way of being alive. And our faith is hoping and believing and trusting in that one day reality that is to come fully because Jesus' resurrection is intrinsically linked to God's plan for his people, for this world. Jesus was first, and those who surrender their lives in allegiance to him are to follow. We too will one day be raised, resurrected from these dead and dying bodies to new life with Christ. We too will be given new, physical, resurrected bodies just as Christ was given. And that is why the resurrection of Jesus is intrinsically linked to Christian hope. For every Christian, there is a new life that is to come. And the good thing is, by the time we get to today's verses and today's passage, it seems that Paul suspects that the church in Corinth may be coming around to the idea of the resurrection. Maybe maybe Paul has a point. Maybe all of our longings for a world that is right and good and just speaks to the possibility of a world that is right and good and just. That is likely where some of us are here today asking questions, wondering, maybe, maybe could all that Jesus has said and done and taught, could it, could it be true? So in verse 35, Paul envisages the next question that they might be asking. And I think it's a great question, or it's two questions. They ask, how are the dead raised? With what, what kind of body do they then come? You're saying it happened and it's going to happen again. So, so, so hi, give me, give, me, give me some details of this process. Will our resurrected bodies be the same bodies that we have today? Will there be a difference? And I think there's a, kind of, there's a fair line of questioning here. Basically, the singular question they are asking is, how does the resurrection work? In consideration of the idea that dead bodies that have, have decomposed will be coming back to life again, it doesn't seem crazy then to ask, well, how does it work after, after decomposing? Is there some kind of process of recomposing after have bones have become, become part of minerals and our flesh has become part of soil? How, how do we reform? You might be thinking that's a very detailed way to look at the, the, the question, but we have to take a step back. We remember that those that are reading this in Corinth are, first, are the first generation of Christians. They, they, they weren't born into any kind of Christian culture. They didn't, they didn't grow up with heaven as a concept in movies that they watched. There was, no, there was no prominent, clear belief in life after death for these Corinthians, and there definitely wasn't any belief of a physical resurrection. And so their imaginations were, were kind of caught flat-footed with this resurrection thing. Their minds were were kind of limited in pondering the possibilities of what it meant. And so Paul in our passage today gives them some analogies and some metaphors to consider in regards to what resurrection, resurrected life will be like. But look what Paul says in verse 36. He, He envisages their next question. He sets it up. 
And then he responds, you foolish person for asking that. And I'm like, I know this is the Bible, but Paul, be nice. This is just a question. Calling people foolish. We're going to see in a moment where Paul's frustration lies. Paul begins answering their question, the second half of verse 36. He says, the resurrection of the dead is like this. Then he writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul brings up the analogy of what it's like for a seed to grow into a plant or into a tree or into a flower. The order of growth begins first with a seed that figuratively is cold and damp and dead, becoming a plant that is alive and beautiful and flourishing. And Paul is saying the resurrection is like this. Paul is telling the church in Corinth that death is like a seed. It is a pathway to becoming, like a seed is a pathway to becoming a plant. And so you can see that how Paul is already starting to shape their, their imaginations as to what the resurrection might be like, like a seed that has been buried coming to newness of life. Then he says in verse 37, and what you sow, as in the seed you put in the ground when you're farming or you're gardening, that seed is not the body it will become in the future. The seed is, is just a seed perhaps of wheat or of some kind of grain. Until that seed grows, then it is given a life distinct from the seed. Paul is saying if you look at a seed and you look at the kind of plants that come from seeds, seeds and what grows from them are so different. It's incredible if we were to, to go down to Indian Boundary Park, we were going to Westridge Nature Preserve, each of us went out and we all had to find seeds, as many seeds as we could find and we all brought them back together again unless there were some serious gardeners in the room and maybe there are, very likely we wouldn't be able to tell which plant and which flower and which tree and which herb would grow from which seed. A seed is typically hard, dark, and small, with each being relatively similar. But then when you think about the creativity that comes from seeds, it's incredibly diverse all over the world. I don't know if you've ever gone somewhere in a different state or of a different country and you've come across a plant and you've thought, I've never seen a tree like that. That's what Paul is trying to get us into the space of thinking like. The diverse, this diverse spectrum in nature, it is by God's choosing. Then verse 39, Paul keeps going to point out God's creativity. It doesn't stop with plants. And bear with me as we go through this. Verse 39, Paul writes, For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, and there is another for animals. There is another for birds, and another for fish. Paul saying in response to their question about the resurrection, look at all forms of life in general. Not just plants, but people and animals and birds and fish. Look how different all of these life forms are. And the ordering that Paul here uses for these different forms of life actually harkens back to the story in Genesis chapter 1 of creation. Paul is working his way backwards through the creation narrative. So by the time we get to verse 40, Paul is referring to the distinction between the earth and the sky. On earth we have mountains and rivers and icebergs, but in the heavens, on this, in the sky, we have clouds and sunsets and lightning. What we see on earth is different from what we see in the sky. And then in verse 41, Paul keeps going, stay with me. I know you're wondering, what in the world has this got to do with the resurrection? Blame Paul, not me. It's his logic. In verse 41, Paul keeps going. He leaves earth and sky behind, and he just focuses on the creative spectrum of diversity within the sky alone, the sun, the moon, the stars, each different, distinct, creatively unique, all by God's choosing and design and brought into being by God's omnipotent power. 
So what is the connection here? What's the the connect between their question and Paul's answer? When they ask, how does the resurrection work? Why does Paul go on this almost rant about all that God has created? Look, God made this, and God made this, and God made this. Did you see that weird fish? Have you seen a shooting star? Let me explain. You see, Paul responds to their question by calling them foolish. Because within their question, hidden in the actual words of what may seem like a very fair and valid question is a degree of skepticism that Paul has no time for. Paul could hear the skepticism in the tone of their question. Skepticism is is a disposition of doubt. It's it's to, to come to the table with a spirit of disbelief. I've looked at this from every angle and I can't find a single redeemable possibility. Every door is closed and every end is dead. And the way Paul frames this question is so smart because he clearly understands us that our lack of faith, our lack of trust in the goodness and the kindness and the power of God is often not overt. It's not often up front. We're smart enough to know, let's not put it up front. It's not always blatant, but it's just below the surface. We hide our our skepticism. We sneak it into our comments and our questions and our analysis and our attitude. We bring it to church and we bring it to small group. We bring it into our leadership and we bring it into our marriages and we diffuse it into the air that's around us. Our skepticism is as subtle as the tone with which we articulate our words, but it's there. And so Paul recounts the wonders of God's capabilities by walking through the narrative creation, why? As to say, haven't you seen what God can do? Haven't you seen what God can do? Haven't you stood back and seen in verse 41 that there is one glory for the sun and that there's another glory for the moon? Have you stopped and looked at the sun and have you stopped and looked at the moon? And another glory for the stars and the different stars differ from the glory of other stars? Haven't you seen what God can do? What God is capable of doing? Have you never stood in a a thunderstorm? Have you never seen a sun rise? And yet you're still skeptical of God's ability to one day enact justice on behalf of the oppressed. Are you really skeptical that the God who makes the sun burn, that he won't also one day bring vindication for the righteous? Whatever your situation that feels so irredeemable and impossible, church, haven't you seen what God can do? In guitar this week during um, one of the sessions, all, all the pastors had to go into to one room and all the imams and the Muslim leaders had to go into another room and we were tasked with the, the, the question in each group to answer it separately, what do we want the other to know us by? So we had to go into the room, all the pastors had to ask, what do we want the Muslim leaders to know us by? What characteristic do we want to stand out as a reflection of our faith? 
And so all 20 or so Christian pastors and leaders went into the room and bear in mind there were pastors here from Nigeria, there were pastors here from Pakistan and a host of other countries where, where they exist as a minority in their country and many of those countries were under a lot of tension and, and conflict with their Muslim leaders or neighbors. Actually twice in two separate occasions I asked um, two different imams and regarding their context, one was in Pakistan, I asked them, if, if a Muslim converted to Christianity within your context, within your city, what would happen to them? And twice I was told, in our context, if a Muslim was to become a Christian, they would be killed. And so we were going back as the Christian pastors to tell the Muslim leaders what we as Christians want to be known for. And I say pr pretty quiet in the room, particularly watching the Christians who, who lived and ministered and were trying to be the church in countries where they were a minority and we would say we're facing persecution. And you know what the unanimous characteristic that this room of Christian leaders wanted to be known for? Hope. Hope. In a thick... African accent, one of the pastors said, we are the people who bring good news. That is who we are. Church, nobody is saying not to feel the brokenness and the grief of this world. I'm no fan of any faith that doesn't look unflinchingly at the pain in this world and in the church and in our relationships. Human suffering should break our hearts and should keep us up at night and it should dictate our life's work. But the disposition of skepticism when it comes to the promises of God is foolishness. It's a contradiction of our faith. It's a disservice of our faith. It makes our faith futile. For the Corinthians, they were skeptical of the resurrection. They were skeptical that there could be another physical world to come. And so in verse 42, after taking them for a walk through creation, Paul writes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. As in, if God made this world, he can make another world. If God made these bodies, he can make new bodies. Rogers Park, when we see all these little kids up here this morning, no, no scientist has an explanation for what it means that they are alive. No scientist even knows what life is and most definitely doesn't know where it came from. And so whether the question be, how are the dead raised or how is a newborn's life conceived, the answer is the same, that God takes what is not and he makes it what it is. That is the power of God and our hope that no matter the situation or the circumstances that we find ourselves in, no matter how sure it seems that we are at a dead end, there is a God who is not curtailed by the limitations of the raw materials at hand. There is a God who is prone to taking what is not and breathing into nothing, new life and new hope and a new future. But there's another angle that Paul wants his readers in Corinth to understand about the resurrection. He wants to not only remind them that God is able, but also the resurrected life will be a life that is greater. Verse 42 reads, what is, sown, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable, as in our current bodies are bound by time and are dying, but our resurrected bodies will not be, there will be no sickness, there will be no illness, there will be no more deterioration. 
Verse 43 reads, what is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in par, as in our current bodies are bound by sin and rebellion from God, but our resurrected bodies will be sinless and pure and in action, in thought, and in deed. Verse 44 reads, what is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body, as in and we aren't even able to fully grasp this, but our resurrected bodies will new, have new abilities that we don't currently possess. What these new abilities may be, we don't know. The passage doesn't say. Maybe greater strength, maybe greater sight, maybe additional senses, maybe we'll have new categories of ability that we don't even know about yet. Then in our final verses, Paul offers us the final key framework to help us understand the difference between our lives now in comparison to resurrected life that is to come. In verse 45, Paul writes, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Paul is saying the first Adam in Genesis chapter 1 was the first living being, but Jesus in his resurrected state, as in the first resurrected being, is not just living, but he is life-giving. The point made in verse 46 and 48 is simply this, that we spend our lives today in bodies that reflect Adam's physical state after the fall due to our sin entering, sin entering the world, but we will spend the rest of eternity in bodies that are given to us by Jesus himself that are a reflection of Jesus himself. Verse 49 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul ends these verses by placing the resurrection within God's redemptive narrative from the beginning to the end. The resurrection is not just an at random event that will just one day occur. No, the resurrection of the saints is, is the final event that will bring to completion all that God has been doing throughout all of history. The final resurrection will bring to completion what Christ accomplished on the cross. The final resurrection will bring to completion what God has, been begun working, has be already begun working in you today. The final resurrection will bring to completion the church being gathered from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that is why the resurrection to come can give us hope, even today. Because we know the beginning and the middle, and we know the end. The church in Corinth was skeptical. They couldn't imagine resurrection. They couldn't imagine how is it going to work. And yet just then, that is when Christian hope is at its best. When we can't imagine how it's going to work. When we have looked at our circumstances from every angle and we still can't find a single redeemable possibility, when we can't figure it out, that is when Christian hope is at its best. Because it is then that we realize our hope is rooted in something far deeper than what we can imagine. There is hope in simply knowing that our imaginations do not fully comprehend all that God is capable of doing. When we can't imagine a way through, when we can't imagine a possible solution, when we can't imagine the miracle that we long for, when we can't imagine resurrection, God says, haven't you seen what I can do? Haven't you seen what I can do? 
Have you never stood in a thunderstorm? Have you never watched a sun rise? Have you never seen a shooting star? God takes what is not and beyond our imagination makes it what is. Whether a marriage, a relationship, a longing, a dream, or resurrection, there is hope because in ways that we can't imagine and beyond our control, God promises to spend our lives conforming us to Christ's likeness for our good. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, God is, God is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Church, what would it mean to instill hope into our demeanors? What would it mean to instill hope into the tone of our questions? What would it mean to instill hope into our attitudes and our comments, into our small groups, into our gatherings? What would it mean to diffuse hope, not skepticism, into the air that's around us? For no other reason than that is who we are, that we are a people who bring good news. Let's pray. God, I pray, God, that you would help us to trust in you. God, I pray that we would have a deep awareness that you're at work even in ways that we cannot see, even beyond our imaginations. God, I pray for those that are here today and maybe feel that they are a dead end. God, I pray, God, that they would see that there is no dead end with Jesus. That Jesus rose from the dead to bring newness of life for all of eternity. I pray, God, that we would find hope in that, in every situation, that you're at work, that you're there. God, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, give us a greater awareness of what you're doing. God, may we be known in this neighborhood as a people of hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.